Thank you, Christine, and good morning again, everyone. You know, when I stand up here on Sunday mornings and I say it is great to be together, I really mean that, friends. I love to gather together on Sunday mornings. And when I say that, I also realize that while we are all sharing this space today, we may not all be in the same frame of heart and mind when it comes to Jesus. You may continue to be deeply affected by Jesus' words, or you might only be admiring Jesus from a distance. You may agree that Jesus is significant, though you'd feel safer if he was in the passenger seat and not driving. You might be profoundly impacted by how Jesus has served you, or you could be disappointed that he hasn't done what you wanted or expected. Maybe Jesus has become routine for you. Or perhaps you find that Jesus grates more and more against your sensibilities, and you wonder if your life would be better with less Jesus. Regardless of where you're at with Jesus, I'm glad you're here this morning. And I want you to know that, like Lindsay flagged, we are going to meet some people in our Bible passage today that may be in a similar space to you. And wherever you are, my hope is that this morning God will use our time in his word as we look at this passage to move each one of us, wherever we're at, even one step closer towards Jesus, towards taking him seriously, perhaps, towards trusting him, towards treasuring him, towards following him. So let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, would you grant us humility under your word? And please, kindly and gently, would you move us one step closer towards Jesus today? Amen. Well, our passage today, it marks a shift in Luke's account of Jesus. Up until now, heaps has happened to Jesus. You may remember Jesus was promised. Jesus was born. Jesus was held in the arms of people who praised God. Jesus was filled with wisdom. Jesus was baptized. Jesus was led into the wilderness. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Much has happened to Jesus, but now Jesus happens. Today in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes on the front foot, and this is how he begins his public ministry. Take a look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. When we last left our hero, he was still standing, unstained and victorious in his battle with the devil's temptations. And now, Jesus propels his ministry forwards, teaching to the delight of everyone. Applause, approval, amen, brother. This morning, Luke tells us about two days in the life of Jesus. 
one in Nazareth and the other in Capernaum. They both begin in the local synagogue on the Sabbath. They both give us a clear portrait, not only of who Jesus is, but especially what he's come to do, what his ministry is all about. And so that's the structure that we'll use to process this passage Two days, and apologies for my titles, they're a bit tongue-in-cheek, but hopefully they help to capture what's happening. So day one, if you're taking notes, day one, that's verses 16 to 30. Day one, Jesus torpedoes his approval rating in less than 24 hours. And day two, that's verses 31 to 43, day two, maybe he's not that fussed about approval ratings anyways. Day one. If you've got the text of scripture in front of you, your Bible's open, you'll notice that Jesus heads to his hometown, where he was brought up, of Nazareth. So let's enter this scene in verse 16. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Rising from his seat in the synagogue, Jesus stands up to read. There is an air of anticipation. An attendant places the scroll of the prophet Isaiah in his hands, and Jesus' fingers, they feel for the edge of that scroll as he begins to unroll it. The parchment, that has a distinct crispness to it. Rustling in the stillness as Jesus finds the words he's looking for. And he found the place where it is written. Verses 18 and 19 record these words that Jesus read out. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolls up the scroll, a cylinder of scripture. He hands it back to the attendant. And without a rush, he calmly takes his place and sits down. Now, if it was hushed before, it is silent now. Even the flies have stopped buzzing. No one can look away from Jesus. And in that beat between breaths, between the blink of an eye, when every eye is fastened on Jesus, what must the people in the synagogue have been thinking? What does this mean? Jesus breaks that silence and fills the void with this momentous declaration. You can see it there in verse 21. Today, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Promise has become reality. God's anointed one, his servant, has arrived. These people, they've had the text of God's word in their hands, and now they have the voice of God's son in their ears. Now is the time of God's grace. His favor 
towards whoever will humbly receive it. The whispers, the side comments, the low murmur of conversation begins. Well spoken. What a swell fellow. Absolutely brilliant. Wait a minute. We know this guy. And then, isn't this Joseph's son? The people of Nazareth, they've grown up with Jesus, right? They probably have stories of Jesus when he was six years old, when he was 16 years old. They think they know who he is. But their assumptions, they are wildly inaccurate. Though they are amazed at Jesus' words, they fail to recognize that God's Son, who is full of God's Spirit and brimming with God's grace, is sitting amongst them. And in verses 23 and 24, Jesus responds to their skepticism. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, he says, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In other words, people who demand that Jesus prove himself in new ways, well, they are a long way away from really grasping who Jesus is. And people who should know better will end up rejecting him. Jesus follows up these words of warning with a history lesson. Did you see that? He highlights two important episodes from the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. You may remember they were significant prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah was sent by God to a starving widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And Naaman was a valiant commander of the Aramean army. He had leprosy and sought out Elisha. Now, neither the widow nor Naaman were Israelites. Yet they obeyed the word of God that came through Elijah and Elisha, and they were saved. The widow didn't die. Naaman was cleansed. There was no shortage of Israelites that needed food, that needed cleansing in those days. But in these episodes, it was people beyond the circle of God's people Israel who were rescued. And Jesus implies here, here's what he's doing, that, that Israel's past rejection of God, that was a fact. And, and now their hearts are hard towards Jesus. And these two true stories, they also flag the unique direction that Jesus' ministry is heading in. It's outwards. It is onwards. It is to the unexpected, to the overlooked, to the undeserving. They are a picture of the plan of God. The whole world needs saving, and so Jesus' ministry cannot be bound only to a small, select group of people. It's for everyone. Well, this would not be the first or the last time that history has been a hot topic. And there is more 
tension in the room now than a Women's World Cup penalty shootout. Indeed, as you, as you listened, as you heard verses 28 and 29 being read, you may have thought, well, that escalated quickly. All the people in the synagogue, remember the same people that were just praising Jesus moments ago, they are furious when they hear this. Many of these people had probably been around Jesus for the better part of three decades. Three decades around Jesus. And so let us remember that familiarity with Jesus does not equal faith in Jesus. And let us remember that living with Jesus as your neighbor is not the same as living with Jesus as your king. I'm sure the people of Nazareth tolerated Jesus. They'd hang out with Jesus. I mean, I'm sure they even enjoyed the notoriety that Jesus brought. But when things get personal, they are prepared to pivot. Their amazement turns to anger. In verse 29, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I find it amusing to imagine Luke as he's composing his gospel, hearing these eyewitness testimonies, interviewing one of the people of Nazareth that was there. So let me get this straight. You took him to the edge of a cliff and just tell me what happened next. Yeah, so like we had Jesus, and and then we didn't. One minute he was here, and and then the the next minute he was just walking through. And you just let him go? Well, yeah. I mean, what else were we supposed to do? It's it's Jesus, you know. Jesus walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The brute force of a livid mob that is no match to keep him from his mission. Day one, Jesus torpedoes his approval rating in less than 24 hours. Day two, maybe he's not that fussed about approval ratings anyway. So if he's not concerned about people's approval, then what's he on about? Jesus is on about God's agenda. That's what he's on about. Look back for a moment to verses 18 and 19. What is the key word? What is the dominant verb in that quotation from Isaiah? Did you see it there? It comes up once, twice, three times. Proclaim. Speaking words. Teaching. And in verse 31... Then Jesus went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, what did he do? He taught the people, and they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Sound familiar? 
The people of Nazareth were amazed at Jesus' gracious words. The people of Capernaum are amazed at the authority of Jesus' words. And Luke is about to illustrate just how much authority Jesus' words carry. So check out verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. Now, would you note here that the demon-possessed man and the religious folks of Nazareth, they want the same thing. Did you see that? They want nothing to do with Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now note that whatever power the demon possesses, that pales in comparison to Jesus. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus says sternly. Now if you're wondering why Jesus doesn't want these demons to say who he is, why he doesn't want them to speak, stay tuned, we'll, we'll get there. What does Jesus say next? Come out of him. He gives a direct order and the demon obeys straight away. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Now what I can only imagine to be a potentially traumatic experience, right? For this possessed man, it resolves in safety. He's cleansed, he's unharmed, and that'll get people talking, and they do. Again, amazed at the authority and the power of Jesus' words. News about Jesus, it's spreading. Word is getting around, and of course, in those days, the only way to spread news was to speak the news to whoever would hear. So lots of mouths are busy. Lots of ears are listening. Jesus departs that large public forum of the synagogue, and he walks to a much more personal venue. He goes to Simon's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, she's sick. She's suffering from a high fever, and Jesus' reputation, it precedes him, and his assistance is requested. So this is how Jesus helps in verse 39. Have a look there. He bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Lots of people can treat sickness, but only Jesus can tell sickness where to go. The woman's recovery is so complete that she immediately serves hot drinks. And I'm not sure what sort of tea or coffee Simon's mother-in-law made Jesus, but I imagine he appreciated that caffeine because it was about to be a long night. In verse 40, the blue sky darkens, shot through with streaks of orange and purple and indigo before it becomes inky black. And though the darkness comes, it does not deter Jesus. In fact, it's why he's come to proclaim recovery of sight, remember, for the blind, light for those living in darkness. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now, can we pay attention for, for just a moment to the personal nature of Jesus' ministry? 
He didn't have to. Yet for each one of those people lined up, he, he lays his hand on each individual person. And he makes them well. And that's all, not all that's happening. Uh, Jesus, at the same time, he is on a collision course with the demonic world. Look what's going on in verse 41. Demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. So let's go back to that question. Why doesn't Jesus want these demons to reveal his identity? You wondering that? (laughs) I was. I think here's what's happening. Jesus wants to reveal who he is on his own terms. And so demonic shouts, those do not come from a place of devotion to Jesus, do they? They come from a desire to disrupt Jesus' mission. And so Jesus says, now, shush. And Jesus' mission, it is foremost in his mind. We'll get there in just a minute. At verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The the sky begins to take some color now, though perhaps the light is still opaque enough for Jesus to slip away. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. These people want Jesus to be the hometown hero. But Jesus has a much bigger, broader horizon in mind. Jesus will not be contained. What is this guy on about anyway? What makes Jesus tick? Have you wondered that? What gets him out of bed in the morning? He tells them, and he tells us in verse 43. Here it is. This is Jesus' mission in his own words. I must, Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Here's the summary. Here's the sentence for today. God's sent son gives priority to gospel proclamation. I'll run that by you again. God's sent son gives priority, this is number one, to gospel good news proclamation. And can you hear the resonances with that earlier passage from Isaiah? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' mission that will propel him towards the cross. Jesus has begun his ministry by giving people a taste of the kingdom of God, healing sickness, driving out demons. It's an indication of the comprehensive work that he will accomplish in his death and his resurrection. 
destroying the power of death, destroying the power of the devil. And of course, the culmination of this gospel proclamation is that Jesus himself is the good news. His life, his death, his resurrection, they are God's gift to all who will receive it. And that is good news, friends, for poor souls like us. That is true freedom for prisoners of sin like us. That is clear sight for those who have been walking in darkness like us. And that is favor and grace for people who have ignored Jesus or thought less of Jesus or thought they didn't need Jesus. People like us. So a new day dawns and Jesus keeps on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We know now, though, don't we, that Jesus is more than simply a man on a mission. He is the God-man, empowered by God's Spirit on a God-given mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. A kingdom that comes through God's authority, God's power, and God's grace in the Lord Jesus. And so should this then recalibrate our purpose? I think so. It frames our picture of Jesus. It sharpens our expectations of Jesus. How do our priorities, how do your priorities fit with Jesus' priority? How does our mission as a church match up with Jesus' mission. It would seem that if we're keeping the good news of Jesus to ourselves, we are paddling against the current of Jesus' ministry. We can either attempt to align Jesus with what we think he should be doing, or we can let Jesus align us with what he is doing. I'll say that once more. We can either attempt to align Jesus with what we think he should be doing, or we can let Jesus align us with what he is doing. What's Jesus doing? God's sent son gives priority to gospel proclamation. If that wasn't his priority, if that wasn't Jesus' priority, I wonder, as people who have heard the gospel proclaimed to us, as people who have been saved by Jesus, as people who have been transformed by Jesus, I wonder, if that wasn't Jesus' priority, would we have missed out on Jesus altogether. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have not missed out on Jesus. Thank you for the faithful service and the magnificent mission of your Son, Jesus, sent for us.
Amen.